Yeah, the problem with email is that um, it's one, it's like one channel for for very different things. And so you get things where people are using it in the same way you use an instant message where you want to reply right away. But people also use it to send general thoughts that can be responded to at some point in the future. And they send it for questions that either need an immediate medium or long response. And they send it junk mail. Like there wasn't IM, there wasn't text messaging. So I think people get used to using it for different reasons from a time when, certainly at least as to some folks, it's because they got used to using it at a time when there were fewer channels available. Right. It's like Uh, the web. Someone learning it now, of course, has IM, has text. You know, I don't know what their excuse is. Do kids even use email? No, no, I I don't think so. I thought not. And I increasingly think my students don't. And I actually admit I increasingly use it for more limited – I still use it a lot, but I do use it for more limited purposes. Um, I use it more for professional purposes or for slightly longer things that are not text-worthy um, because I don't – text-worthiness is something that I do try to preserve. I don't – a long – one of the bad things about voice dictation is suddenly texts are can get long. T- 10 times longer than they used to be. Yeah. And I yeah. don't see that as a, a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a text traditionalist. If you can remove ambiguities with a, with a few more words, though, that can be helpful. That it's can like an inverted helpful. U. Like number of words, clarity goes up, then it starts going down again. That can be true. It also can be that a person is just pushing more ideas and gibberish into a text messages that they wouldn't have bothered to type I out. I love it that ideas and gibberish go, to de- go together there. Like the, they're inseparable. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that is one of the premises of our show. I, I, do, I do spend a lot of time in your company. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> That, that is true. <laughs> um, but I, I use uh, Basecamp for my classes now, which is better. I don't know what that better. is. It's like it just, it's a, it's groupware essentially. You know, it, it's, it's got a discussion forum. It's a place to post files. It has a uh, place to post uh, text. Mm-hmm. And it's, you, you log in, right? But also it sends It's like a that, private Facebook. But you can set how you right? want the notifications. Yeah, it's like, well, a little bit like a private Facebook. Yeah, a little bit. Um, a, a little bit different though. I mean, it's more, it's more traditional than, than say, um, what was that? What was the thing I used to use? Oh yeah, that thing we tried that first. went away. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, Slack. Well, that's the, the Slack new is thing. the new thing. Yeah, that's but you're using a Glassboard. Glassboard, um, right? Which was awesome, uh, but went away. And then, well, Christian, you, you you said something a few weeks ago. You said X is going to completely replace Y. It's breakthrough technology, and I didn't know what X was, and I didn't even know what Y was. Really? <laughs> so I felt really kind of. I'm trying to think of what. Boy, I wish I remember what that was. <laughs> it it's like already it, been replaced by Z, so it it's, like it was it's irrelevant. What was it? What was going to replace what? Gosh. It was the video chat. Oh, yeah. Periscope, Periscope replacing thing. Meerkat. Yes. We should be Periscoping this right now. I, you know, I was thinking that the other day. We're that not we can do Periscope. That. Uh, we won't include you in the frame, no. but we could Periscope. Now uh, I'm hurt. <laughs> you, Somehow, I thought you were like protesting. That, it, turned. it just turned. Just done a dial. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. I'm going to dial this thing up. Why are, we, yeah, here we go. This doesn't take long. Are we going to do some uh, periscoping? People won't know to watch it. Nah, but see, they'll know for the next time. Yeah, we could tell our fans that we'll be using Periscope to live cast some of our discussion. <gasps> do you think that's going to increase or decrease your listenership? Um, oh, I can't wait to find listenership. out. I can't mm-hmm. wait to find out. Well, given our listenership... Really Adding could... one or two swings it by like 150%. <laughs> really, it's got nowhere to go but up. You've got lots of growth room in South Dakota. Yeah. All right, here we go. Let's see if anybody... Room to grow. We're now live. Oh, and I just got my... I just see on my phone, Christian Turner is live recording oral argument on Periscope. So I got my little Periscope flag. 
Yeah, there we I go. thought we weren't on Periscope. Came out. No, what he said was Periscope was going to uh, chase out the meerkat. Uh, right. Meerkat is another app. Oh, and Periscope's going to chase out the meerkat. There's Lori. Why is he doing that? Because it's fun. I told him to not do that. It doesn't matter. There are zero watchers right now. <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, now, does Periscope, these aren't persistent videos, right? Once you stop broadcasting, it's you not can, like someone could go back and you watch. You can choose. It. Like the ones I, I recorded the Stars concert. Oh, I'm sorry. See, once I start recording, I get away from the thing. Oh, we've got, we've got a viewer now. I don't think this is going to be good for humanity. I don't, Why not? I don't think we need the video equivalent of tweeting um, in the world because tweets get enough people in trouble and annoy enough people and create enough problems that the video. Are you saying that Twitter that, is not a social good? It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. And the I mean, video I think thing having, seems less mixed. And so more is the bag. wheel. I think having video that captures, you know, a policeman committing a cold blooded murder um, it, and a and when he was lying about what he had done, and it's only the passerby who videoed mm -hmm. it that proves to us what actually happened, I think that's like super important. That is super important. How does this technology add to the, our ability to do that thing that we can already do? Um, it makes it broadcastable out in a way that it could be uh, captured. So one thing, one concern I think people have for, um, is if you capture video, what if the policeman sees you, grabs the phone and throws it on the ground and, and stomps on it, right? Mm -hmm. Is the video lost? Mm -hmm. It might be if you don't have software that takes what you've just taped and puts it off into the cloud where it can't be, mm -hmm. you know, commandeered by an official, right? But that cloudification also, I'm not a privacy freak. I'm generally less concerned about privacy than most people. The idea that Pretty much any time someone could be broadcasting me directly to the web and I can't stop that um, creeps me out a little bit. It is. Oh, no, I think it's got major creep factor. Um, I'm, I'm, not I'm not saying I have this all figured out. I'm saying like what you said before, mixed bag, right? Mm -hmm. there, there are some things that seem to me to be like likely to be quite terrible. There also seem I, I know I can think pretty quickly of things that seem like a really good idea. And so just we're going to be working through this like. We work through everything else, which is to say pretty badly, even occasionally good. I think the thing about Periscope, though, it's not it, it's it gives you a reason to record video. And and actually, you know, the norm is to hold it just portrait, right, rather than turn it to the side. So if you're going to make a video like we normally uh, like up until now, you would take some video and and there were things like Justin TV and a few other things, but they haven't taken in the same way. And, and you maybe maybe you do some things, maybe you would edit it, maybe you wouldn't and you upload it to YouTube. And then people would watch it, right? So there's a, a, there's a distance, a psychological and a temporal distance between the recording of the thing and the and the output of the thing. And, and it's not that people didn't. Videos have been everywhere, right? They've been, but there's something about uh, Periscope, and I, you know, who knows if it's going to be this particular incarnation or not. That just makes you all you have to do is hit a button, and people are viewing it, and you get immediate feedback. People are hitting those little hearts, you know, giving you feedback right away. Yep. Um, it's very similar to this idea I shared with you a long time ago because I actually thought that like live audio streaming where basically the interface is like a microphone and you hit it and you're recording and anybody else can listen i thought this would be awesome as a way to like uh i just imagine like kids like calling a like a football game in the stands or something like right. that and being little announcers or providing alternate like how cool would this be if it were built into your tv and you're watching the oscars or something like that or the super bowl or you know champions league final or or, or any other thing but instead of hearing the regular audio, you can kind of select and you can hear your favorite, like, you know, YouTuber or whoever oh, else. Oh, so you can like, separate your audio channel from your video. Yeah. Like, See, Christian, I, this, this might be one of the things that we, we 
kind of fundamentally different on. I, <laughs> one of the things. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> no, I just I like my world a little more curated. Um, I don't want to expend the energy, um, and the the we we know that making choices constantly consumes an incredible amount of our mental effort. Um, and you're describing a universe in which choice is ubiquitous. Um, a whole bunch of which I don't want to make. I want to know. I want to read a newspaper where I know professional journalists have done some preliminary screening and work for me rather than trolling the web for what random person X has to say about something. But that's not how people are using YouTube these days. I mean, you know, like it used to be like if I got a video game when I was a kid, you know, maybe you'd have to buy like the strategy guide that even came later. But, you know, you you'd hunt around in magazines and stuff and you'd read things, you read the official thing. Now, kids, you know, kids just watch a YouTube video. And they they watch other people playing games to do, and they they find and, and some of these people are quite have become quite famous and and make a lot of money. So I, I I'm imagining yeah there'd be lots of like amateur streams of, mm-hmm. of various kinds, but also well known people. Like I would much rather watch the Academy Awards with this YouTuber that I follow or, or you know mm-hmm. uh, someone that I'm used to hearing. Like that person now is, has is is his or her own thing, right? And the fact that they're doing the Academy Awards is actually a reason to watch the Academy Awards rather than the other way around. So it's not like I'm just clicking on a thing and then I'm looking through a list of like 10,000 people who are doing their own thing. And it's like, how am I going to choose? It's like, no, you know, through this mechanism, I found people who are really entertaining to listen to commenting about things like whatever it is. And it's always funny. So that so now I'm going to tune into, you know, this, that or the other. And you would have people who could like, you know, you're in a place and something happens. There's an accident. There's a. Uh, some breaking news and you could just hit that little button and all of a sudden you're broadcasting and people are using periscope that way yeah. too uh, yeah because it mean, picks up voice right it, yeah of yeah, course so. it picks up voice yeah and and, and video it's really interesting because you're assuming that the the availability of these technologies will actually increase quality in net yeah and my worry is exactly the opposite that when so much stuff is available for free people's willingness to pay for anything goes down and that the and when you can't pay for something, you can't professionalize it. You lose a lot if something cannot actually support an income. Um, and that overall, while you might, in fact, have a better Academy Award broadcaster because someone's really witty or clever who's not supported by the infrastructure, on net, we might have a loss in in quality because how many people are going to pay enough attention that they're going to pay for a better version of something rather than a less good free version? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, at, you know, the, it's going to be the struggle between ad supported things and listener supported things. And, you know, this is a when I was thinking up the app, I was thinking that there would be an, you know, if you're broadcasting, you could do ad sharing and there could be a little button saying put the ad now and you could either do your own or you could do the. So there are all kinds of ways to think about like monetizing it so that you you encourage um, people to do things that that will be supported. But but these technologies also um it's not that they increase or de- decrease quality, but they emphasize quality in different areas in different ways than before. And and so one, one bit of quality on Twitter that in particular is that, um, and we'll wait and see how this shakes out over the long run. But when I was a kid and some of these goofballs went on like Meet the Press and just said dumb stuff, you know, mm-hmm. on Sundays, like – you know, maybe they would get called out in some editorial or something like that. You know, it, and it's certainly among your friends, you could call them out. Um, you know, the, these days, it, it's not just you and your friends who are saying, you know, what a goofball and meet the press or whatever. You know, the, the, can you believe they're just spouting these like, and why aren't they asking? Why aren't they following up? Why aren't they asking these obvious questions? And now if you say something really goofy, you get called out for it and ridiculed 
you know, in meme form or on Twitter. Now, the question is, is that effective? Will it be increasingly effective over time? I actually think that there, you know, there are some people who don't seem to mind and you know who they are. They don't seem to be, they don't seem to mind the fact that everybody's calling them an idiot on Twitter, right? Um, Of course, public shaming is not a unequivocally good thing. No, no. Yeah, this is a different, we're going to do this topic another time because that's a, so this is. Because they can all be saying this is an idiot when in fact the person's dead on correct. Well, or right. the person and, just I mean, said one right. stupid thing and suddenly they right. become the that internet too. phenomena and they can't leave their house. Right. Yeah, no, and I'm not, not talking fair. about that. Not, one yeah. off, I'm talking about like the institutionalized stupidity that we were subjected to in the 80s and 90s on these talk shows where... Yeah, because that's changed? Well, <laughs> fewer people watch them, I think, but also the effect of them changes. That's what I, you know, There's a certain quality to these uh, democratizing technologies that, that does allow for like, you know the water cooler conversation to kind of bubble up. Now, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. And I've got no empirics on this. And, and so you should reject everything that I'm saying, Lori, mm-hmm. as an empiricist. But, uh, but it does seem to me that that's like the optimistic story of these things, right? It's one that they're more fun. They open up all kinds of new entertainment possibilities and new ways to kind of explore our own interests and, you know, so yeah. all that aside. But, but two, it's like, you just can't, I, I just don't think you can get away with the same kinds of things without, and, and public shaming is a little bit different than what I'm talking about. So may, maybe we're getting too far down the road with this and we should save it for another show. But I don't know if it's different or if it's a shading, an, a more negative shading on a similar phenomena. Um, because whether something is calling someone out in a important and legitimate way or whether someone is playing gotcha with someone who happened to say something right. kind of silly and, and is therefore humiliated for, for the next 48-hour news cycle <laughs> um, is kind of a matter of perspective. Now, I think it's a difference yeah. in – I'm not sure it's a difference in kind yeah. as opposed to just in – And they certainly – there's a certain uh, point Laurie made earlier about the cognitive load of, of all of this stuff. It's, it seems to me hard to, hard to debate that uh, – both that our cognitive capacities are limited <laughs> and that therefore if you have five more potential channels coming in, you're going to be potentially dropping five other things off if you decide to do this instead. So it's, I mean, that, that, that challenge of managing, f- finding out where, what's the outer boundary of my cognitive capability? How am I managing the in- stuff internal to the line of my outer boundary? Like, how, am, I, am I using it effectively? Um, I, I kind of like having that problem, though. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, like all, well, like all of us, and maybe even more than most, I struggle with this a lot, you know, right. with the focus and, and decide and, and making sure that I'm conscious of how I'm spending my time. But but to me, like, it's an it's certainly a good relative to when I grew up. I was a kid in the suburbs, and when I got home, my only options right. for, like, thinking about, uh, I mean, I'd go outside and play and stuff, but but if I want to say, well, what's going on in the world? I would turn on the TV, and it was like, well, it's Gilligan's Island or Bewitched. Right. <laughs> that's, that, those, are, those are my media right. choices yeah. when I get and the, you know, that's just, and those are truly brain rotting. Yeah. The, the, the mass media, right. You're um, you sort of uh, uh, the great that's I do think that is a great aspect of the democratization of all of this stuff is that you, you the, the cost of entries fallen dramatically. So uh, you can get a small audience that can pay for um, uh, that can underwrite a much smaller project. You can appeal to a much wider range of tastes. So it's not just, as much as I loved Elizabeth Montgomery in Bewitched. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> I, did, I, I don't I mean did. to slag. I don't mean to slag on it. I'm right. also going to say mean, some, you know, I'm going to say something crazy here. Oh, okay. Um, it's not self-evidently clear to me that more exposure to the real world um, is better when it comes at the cost of less exposure to books. 
Um, I'm not sure you actually build empathy and understanding by watching a Twitter stream more than by sitting down and reading some really good novels. Yeah, no, I, yeah I, how much do I want to debate this right now? I don't know. That's a question. So I can tell you one thing we did with the Periscope. I sat down on the couch with Abney, my daughter, you know, just one evening. And we got, we got on the Periscope. And we just surfed from thing to thing. And we were we watched people uh, at a sword fighting practice thing. This is a tablet, right? Yeah, you, in you California. You were using a phone. You were using an iPad. Yeah, but it was, you know, you had to do, go 2X. But we could use the phone, too. Yeah. And, uh, and and then we saw people at the beach. We saw people surfing by putting the little the phone into the thing. We were in the Middle East. And we were watching some guy uh, in uh, Middle Eastern dress in the back of a very fancy car just talking to the camera. Random stuff. <laughs> Uh, we we saw uh, the uh, Monkey Island on, on or the Monkey M- Mountain Hill on uh, uh, in Kyoto, Japan. People were walking around. We saw a bunch of Australians, and we were just going all around the world. And it was like all this is happening right now. That's what's amazing about it. It's it's like this is really happening right and now. And that's a really neat phenomena. Yeah, but I guess my point would be um, more that uh, that's a really cool phenomena, and it's a neat moment to realize that. It takes you outside of yourself a little bit. I'm not convinced you know more about those people that you viewed or have any greater empathy for them because you saw these fleeting Im- images than you would have if you'd actually sunk into a a book that talks you through someone's lives and lets you share that narrative experience, um, even if fictional. Um Novels are very good at building empathy and understanding in a way I'm not sure being exposed to a rash of images is. No, it's a different – to me, it's a, it's a substitute for – well, I, substitute is a weird thing. It's a new thing. And it's um, – you know, we, we were doing that instead of maybe watching a TV show on Hulu or something right, like that. Right, and the difficulty – you shouldn't have been doing either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Wait, what? I, <laughs> you, you can do that. You, but in you terms can, of building empathy, you should also you should also read books, though, and you should also um, talk to people in person, and you should also like not pay someone to wait online for you. You should go to talk about an earlier episode. Yeah. You should go wait on a line and feel what that's like. And you, I mean, right. And, and, and the, the problem got to do that all these things. Kind of this frantic flurry of experiences, and because we are in a very superficial way exposed to things, we risk convincing ourselves that therefore we understand things um, no, that, that's, but that's not yeah that's yeah. not what i took from it and for me you know podcasts are a way that i've gotten to know and have empathy for other views very well these are you know longer form things and um it's it's not the same as a novel it's not you know they they are more obviously off the cuff although some of them are heavily produced i probably learned more from various like radio lab episodes than mm. Than from many things that I've read, right? Um, or but, I, but it is true. Invisible. I tend to read much, far fewer novels than most of my friends. And but when I do read them, I tend to read ones that I really want to read. I get obsessed with them, and and then it's a while before I read another one. Um, but I love it when I do. It's I just that Oryx I'm not, I'm not a serial the reader. The the Margaret Atwood Oryx and Crake, the mm-hmm. the three books, and I think it, I think it was Meredith and Rigel who turned me on to those. Mm-hmm. When did I read those? Last summer? Yeah, they're 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 real. Or the readers. summer they're before? Now readers. I don't remember, but it was those were amazing, and that and and yeah, and I novels. I don't read as many novels nearly as much as I used to. Uh, but when I was a young kid, especially and and uh, into my twenties, I mean, novels were some of the most wonderful things ever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. because they are they so they are so transporting yeah well and i grew up in a, a a relatively kind of narrow environment there wasn't a lot of diversity exposure excitement um and i i read my way through my entire childhood and the conversations like this make me wonder if i would have if i would have 
been enriched in the same way if I'd had the technology to watch the world through a screen well, rather I, than reading it through a book. And I, I don't know. I mean, it, there are pros and cons to it. I, I mean, think, Rigel but, reads a lot more than I did. As a, he's always reading something new. So he's a serial reader. He also has like a stable of people on YouTube that he follows. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And and I've just now started to understand, I think, you know, I watch this guy who does like Kerbal Space Program videos. They're awesome. The guy's really fun to watch and you get to know him in the same way that you get to know people when you listen to podcasts, right? And that yeah. can be really fun. Um, so, it, you know, it doesn't seem to be, um, it doesn't seem to be an either or thing. Um, well, that's right. Him. But and he's, an, he's a, you know, an obsessive reader. There's going to be reader. good and bad uses of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it, it just, it's so, we've all had this experience. It's phenomenally difficult to put the phone down, uh, right? Yeah. To, to not be constantly messing with it because it's there and it's accessible um, in a way that reading real things actually requires a, a bit more focus and sinking in. And that's hard to do when you're constantly have this temptation of instant distraction. And, when, you know, we read a lot for our jobs. I mean, I'm always reading papers and, and cases, and uh, which is not the same as a novel because it's not the, you know, novels tip typically involve kind of an intentional creation of an empathetic kind of space. And, um, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a little more skeptical about the possible, I love the novels that I love. Um, but I also, you know, I'm like always just thinking about stuff. And when I'm reading, it's like taking time away from just staring in a space thinking, <laughs> which I also enjoy doing very much. And, you know, I just, and that's a very important thing to do as well. Staring yeah. into space, staring into screens, maybe a little less so. Yeah. All right. Should which we... of the two cases are we going to talk about? Both? So, so this was a this was a 20 minute segment segment, which the, the point of which was that the <laughs> listeners should be able to guess our ages. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I am probably projecting something like being born in the 17th century. Um, this is how this conversation has made me feel. No, because, yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking very differently than someone at that time who had the radical idea that people should should read books rather than listen to oral stories and how it was rotting, rotting people's brains <laughs> to be staring into these pieces of paper, you know, Thank these you words on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so a couple of announcements. Announcements. One, uh, this conversation is, is, is fueled by, energized by, dare I say created by, Listener Bunny. Uh, you do dare. You just did. <laughs> I do what I dare. You dared to say it and you did say I, it. I, I do, I do what I dare. Tell us about Listener Bunny. I don't so, know Listener Bunny. Well, uh, uh, Listener Bunny has once again supplied us with coffee. Mm. Uh, Your coffee is delicious, Listener Bunny. Thank oh. you. Awesome. Yes, I I, th I agree. We, we uh, all I haven't been enjoying us, mine. All three of us have a cup of Listener Bunny's coffee, which is uh, made on a, uh, you know, through a Chemex um, ground course. But but so she, so this time she sent us uh, some some whole roasted beans that she made at home. We got the links in a prior show. Yeah. Um, she roasted the beans herself. She's yeah. a home roaster. What a wonderful hobby. And we've talked about... Um, home roasting on the show before I'm not sure because we have talked about but... just about everything on the show at some point <laughs> well it's only no. been 56 episodes so not quite everything but... no we got a, we got a long way to go before we sleep yeah before the, the long icy sleep of death when it's 5600 episodes <laughs> i think then we probably will have talked about just about everything i think you need to have a a show where you talk about um, all the different varietals of Italian wines, um, because you know, if someone feels engaged by that, you might have a really nice. Um, someone might send us some. Someone wine. might send you some wine. Well, we did not have to talk about Scotch whiskey to get. We didn't. 
an awesome bottle of Talisker, which, by the way, the only thing that would make this better is if I had Bunny's coffee in one hand and a glass of Talisker in the other. I once took a take-home exam under the very similar circumstances. <laughs> it didn't go well. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it may make our show better, though. <laughs> Uh, and th- so we also got some feedback, which uh, uh, Joe and I talked about it before the show. We're going to we're gonna talk about that. We're going to record soon after this uh, for next week's show. And it's just going to be you and me for, right. for various reasons. We've had to reschedule a guest. And, yeah. uh, uh, and so we're going to put that feedback off. We've got uh, feedback off of Twitter with a suggestion of, uh, of a topic, which I think would be fun to talk about. And then we have a great uh, email from listener Adam, which mm. we will yes. talk about. So, which raises uh, a number of issues. and. So we'll take that up in the next episode. Yeah, next episode. Cool. Tune in next time, as they say. But this time, are we? Are we? Do you want to talk? Are there any? Should other we start apps? now? Should, are there any other apps that we should talk about first? No, I mean, there, no. I think we've got think so? the apps covered. Do we? All right. So uh, uh, we our guest today is Joe Miller. Joe is a, <laughs> <laughs> Lori Ringhand is with us again. She's Yay! back. She's back. Woohoo! Um, and we're going to talk about. Uh, some kind of election stuff, is that right? I mean, what That's do you, right. I mean, what what do you want to talk about, Lori? I'll talk about whatever you want. You know me. I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> That's true. Um, thank you for having me back. I'm yeah. honored to be here in your beautiful new studio. <laughs> 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 uh, I want to I want to talk about um, a couple of legislative districting cases that um, have been before the Supreme Court this term. Um, the Alabama Black Legislative Caucus versus Alabama case and the Arizona case, um, which is also about legislative districting. And I think the Alabama case was recently decided. Um, I've not read I, it. I don't I, know anything yeah, about it. Really. I still think it's important to talk about. Yeah. Um, the, the, Black Caucus, the Alabama Black Caucus case is about a, a body of law called racial gerrymandering, which the court created a few decades ago. And has been kind of spooling out ever since. Um, in the Arizona case, which um, Christian just mentioned, is about the transfer of power to draw legislative districts from the state legislature in Arizona to an independent, um, purportedly nonpartisan election commission. Um, yeah. And I know that's the one that Christian wants to talk about. But well, I it's the one that I know about, something about. I want to talk about the other one. Oh, first. come on. Yeah, well, the, 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 the Arizona one is, is more than redistricting. I mean, the way they read it, it could apply to all laws from voter ID to uh, polling openings. Yeah, I don't and, think that's true. I think that is the, that, that's the worst case scenario. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think you have to get to that point. But I don't want to talk about that case yet. Oh I want to talk about the other one first. Because right. the other one actually. I see your strategy. If you, start, if you start with the other one. Then, because I haven't read it, I won't. I'll, I'll shut up, and you'll be able to talk. So, so I'm just going to start. Yeah, now. please do. So, so, understanding what's going on in the Alabama Black Legislative Caucus case actually requires quite a fair amount of understanding about some background things. So, I'm going to start talking about those, and it's going to be a little long, and it's going to probably be a little bit boring. Well, but that's. I'll do my this best. Is, that's and, not the and, way to have people listen, Lori. Well, the, the, we'll interrupt you. Don't don't worry, <laughs> listeners. We're going to interrupt her and make her angry, is, and then it's going to be the difficulty you know, is yeah. that the case involves race and politics and districting, mm-hmm. um, and that's an area that people leap to conclusions about sometimes very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, understanding what's going on in the case and why it's is what it is, and and why we have this body of law, I think, does require knowing a little bit about where it came from. Sure. Um, so so to talk about the case or to talk not talk about the case to talk about the background things you all know of course the voting rights act yes. um and the voting rights act had two really important sections section five and section two 
Um, Section 5 required states um, that had a history of discrimination in voting, roughly speaking, to get preclearance from the attorney general or the district court before they made any change to election policies, procedures, rules, et cetera. Um, As you also know, of course, Section 5 was effectively nullified uh, last term in Shelby County by the Supreme Court, which was concerned that the formula for deciding which states had to go through this preclearance process hadn't been updated. Did we talk about this on the show? We didn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this is, I mean, I I always forget because we talked about this in my Supreme Court group. And uh, so what the Supreme Court struck down were the, basically the initial conditions for this process. Like these states have to be pre-cleared because of a history of problems. And so before you change any voting laws, you got to kind of pass it through the Justice Department. And what Section 5 was set out to do, I mean, it it, it existed very intentionally because it flipped the burden of proof. Because what had been happening, of course, and the Voting Rights Act was enacted in 1965. So what had been happening prior to 1965 was states and and legislatures that were involved in pretty blatant intentional racial discrimination in voting, they would do what the folks in the school cases had done for decades. They would litigate up. The Supreme Court would side with the challengers, say, yes, this is clearly unconstitutional. The state would go back and change, tweak one or two little things and force them to litigate all the way up. So what Section 5 was designed to do was to kind of flip that burden um, of, of, um, of litigation. And, yeah. and require states to actually show before they change things related to the election that they weren't going to have a racially discriminatory And it's because with elections, you can get all the benefit of, of doing something squirrely so sure. long as you can keep doing that thing until the election. Right. And then, oh, sorry, and then you can change something else right before the right. election, right? Exactly. So, yeah. So the, the, the Supreme Court's problem with Section 5 in the recent case in Shelby County was not that preclearance is somehow inherently unconstitutional, but Congress hadn't gone back and changed the formula written into the statute about which jurisdictions were covered by that process um, since 1972. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, so in addition to so, – so there are these certain criteria which were key to what was going on way back when, mm-hmm. right? And, and the court's – view at least of some was that a lot a lot has changed but there were also procedures in the act for new states to be bailed in and mm-hmm. for states to be bailed out so mm-hmm. if you if you're not covered under that formula because you didn't have a literacy test in 1965 or something right. like that or one of the other reasons right. uh then you can become covered if you screw up enough maybe right. is it enough section 2 suits or what what was the how well, do you get bailed in do you know bail in is bail in was actually not used very much bail in is tricky yeah. Um, the, the new jurisdictions that came in tended to come in by uh, amendment to the statute um, that increased coverage for things like li- uh, language minorities. That's what brought in new new folks yeah. um, as opposed to changes in the original coverage formula as it applied to African-Americans, which was the um, population of concern, obviously, when the statute was written. Um, but the the statute does provide a bail-in process, but it can only be done by a federal judge. It can't be done through a administrative process of any sort. Um, and it was upon a finding of a violation um, of certain types of constitutional or statutory offenses, but it wasn't used very much. And then there's also like, there's also bailout. There's a bailout. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole idea of the voting rights, of that part of the Voting Rights Act is we need preclearance for basically rec- recalcitrant uh, jurisdictions. But if bail-in and bail-out work okay, then you shouldn't care about the initial conditions because, you know, uh, over well, time. But if they don't work well, then you care very much about them. And yeah, I, I guess people have different views to that. about it. I mean, bail-in, what 
didn't really wasn't used enough to provide a rigorous substitute. Um, now there's lots of thinking being done about how to change that. Now yeah. that Section Five has been effectively nullified and use Section Three a little more aggressively. Um, bailout was hard because once a, if a state as a state is covered for purposes of the coverage formula, every jurisdiction within it is covered. So it made it very hard for any individual local jurisdiction who might in fact not have a, a, a history of discrimination couldn't bail out because the state as a whole couldn't be bailed out. Um, so it was a little bit problematic to, it's problematic to think that either bail in or bail out rendered means that we should not have cared about the covered formula. That said, I mean, Shelby County has a decision saying this is an unconstitutional use of congressional power because the coverage formula hasn't been updated is problematic in its own ways. Um, mm -hmm. the, the most pressing one being that it was really unclear in the case what standard of review the court was using, because as your lawyer readers will, or listeners will know, the, this was a con law one question. This was a question of congressional power, not individual rights. And the 14th and the 15th Amendment, and both of which involve um, prohibitions on discrimination in various ways, ways including race, and they each of those include a so-called enforcement provision giving Congress legislative authority to legislate in the area. Um, and the court has been very fuzzy, particularly in relation to the 15th Amendment, which is specifically about voting, um, in telling us how tightly it's going to consider whether Congress has exceeded that enforcement authority when it legislates in, area, in, legislates in areas of voting rights and race. Um, and that matters here because if Congress has a broad enforcement power, then the court would have had to define, had to say that relying on the original coverage formula is on, was unreasonable. And I think that's actually a pretty hard case to make and under any normal mm -hmm. um, definition of that term, because there are lots of ways that one can think about and calculate where, where the problems are the most acute. Many of those which end up coinciding with the coverage formula. So then your question becomes, even if, if the statute is catching the right places, or at least places that Congress could reasonably think are the right places, even though it's no longer doing so for the same reasons, is it unreasonable for Congress to not dive into that murk and, and, and try to rewrite it? Yeah. Now, the Alabama case is one where it started off, if I read it correctly, it started off at a time when Alabama was bound by a by a vig by a truly existing section five. Yeah, thanks and for that's bringing now, us back. <laughs> and, that's, and that's now given that there's going to be a, a retrial, if you will, a, a, a new proceeding. Um, they're they're not section five doesn't work the same way anymore. So so how does that how does that play out in this case? The fact that had they come up with this redistricting approach for the very first time ever, right now they wouldn't have had to go get clearance for it, right? And, and they, tell us what the case is about, too. Yeah, yeah. They, they, Alabama would not have had to get preclearance, but the the case um, that the court just decided on this issue, the Alabama case, um, is still important because Section 2 still exists out there and raises some of the same questions. So mm. let, let me step back a second and right. tell you what the case is about um, and then kind of talk about why the issues are interesting um, and why they continue to have importance despite the nullification of Section 5. So, so what, what happened in Alabama is that legislative districting, is, as you know, of course, is um, done by state legislatures, um, which 
is the case Christian wants to talk about later. Mm -hmm. But for now, we're just going to say it's done by state legislatures. Um, And what legislative districting is at its most basic level, of course, is when you go in and vote for a congressperson, um, you vote as a member of a particular congressional district. Um, And those district lines don't spring up out of the earth. They have to be created by somebody. Um, And the Constitution gives states the authority to do that, at least in the first instance. So state legislatures are the creatures that create legislative districts, decide who gets put into what legislative district. Federal legislative districts. Federal legislative. Well, they draw their own, too. Yeah, they can, but they can. Federal legislative districts is is the key point. Yeah. Um, So lots of things obviously go into that decision of where you're going to draw a line for a legislative district. Some of what the court has called the traditional districting criteria are, are obvious and would be obvious to anyone who sits down to think about how to draw up legislative districts. Things like when it's possible, you tend to keep existing municipal units together. You care about geography. If there's a river running down the middle of the state, it might make sense to have different congressional districts on each side of that river. You care about communities. Um, if you, you, you want to group communities that share common interests so they can elect someone, a legislator of their choice, to, to Congress. So we have these kind of traditional districting factors. Um, But of course, lots and lots and lots of other things go into the consideration of how to draw those lines, too. The two that come to a clash in both of the cases that we're going to look at for today um, are race and partisanship. Because when districting choices are left with state legislatures, state legislatures, of course, are themselves elected bodies. And as such, they have partisan interests. So partisanship, drawing the lines to advantage your political party, is obviously something that happens. So it can cause, um, so that happens, that's in the process. Um, And race is in the process in part because of the Voting Rights Act, which is why I started there. What had happened prior to enacting the Voting Rights Act is we had this phenomena in districting that voting rights scholars will talk about as cracking and packing. Um, and I, I've not heard about this. Is this okay to talk about on the show? <laughs> I <laughs> think so. Stop right. me if it gets a little too risque. Yeah, it's a family show. Right. So, so, so what, what, what these <laughs> terms mean, of rolling course, your eyes at me, Joe. is <laughs> let me try to do a little thought experiment if I can get Christian and Joe's attention back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, what, what, if, you, if you imagine yourself as a districter who wants to make sure that a population's political influence is minimized to the extent possible. Um, And then also assume, which was the case when the Voting Rights Act was enacted and continues to be the case to a large extent today, that the population whose voting influence you want to, whose political influence you want to minimize is geographically concentrated. This population lives in the same spot. So how do you minimize that population's political power if that's what you're setting out to do? Well, you can crack that population or pack pack it. Mm -hmm. If you crack the population, it's like imagine a pie um, or a city. With a city center, and let's say that city center is where most of the city's African-American population is, and that population is clearly densely compacted in terms of where they live and shares a common political perspective um, and is numeric and populous enough to uh, constitute a majority in a congressional district. Um, But you don't want them to have a congressional district because it's 1964 and you ran for office on the platform that you'll be damned if you're ever going to let one of those people get elected in your state, right? So what you can do if you're cracking the population, imagine the pie, you just slice it like a pie. Mm -hmm. And now instead of having a population that has a majority in a single legislative district, you've got the same population that constitutes a relatively small minority 
um, in eight legislative districts. And so this, they're the they're the pointy. Just so people understand the visual, make sure I understand it. So you put the people who you want to disempower in the pointy part of the pie wedge, right? And that way, they're a little wedge. The pie piece goes out. So right. you've got the people who you want to empower are now in the big thick part of the pie right. wedge. So there are more of them than people in the thin end of the pie wedge, and you've got them all separated. In the, so the middle of your city uh, has eight different congressional districts in it, right. even though it's a single city. That's exactly right. And this was happening. Um, th- there's a case that came out of New Orleans. Um, New Orleans at the t- time the case was decided, which was into the 80s, um, was, I believe, 45 or 46 percent African-American in terms of its voting age population. and there had never been an African-American or in the language of the statute, a candidate preferred by the African-American population um, elected to the city commission um, precisely for this issue. The population, the African-American population in St. or in New Orleans was very geographically con- concentrated and yet cracked between numerous different city commission districts. So what was the other strategy? Packing? packing. So what packing does, it's in some ways exactly the opposite. Um, if again, remember, if you're if what you're trying to do is minimize the political influence or power of a population, you can crack them. Alternatively, what you can do is concentrate um, everyone in that population into a single district so they can control that one district seat, but can have absolutely no influence on anywhere else. else yeah. Right. Um, this was less common, although it's actually become more common for the partisan reasons, which we'll talk about in a bit here. But this would be a way to say, let's say you had a population that was pushing or above 50 percent. Um, and if you actually drew lines by some neutral criteria, imagining that we could come up with such things, um, what you might have is a population that can influence two or three seats, maybe control a couple of seats. So to avoid that, you create a, po- a district that is 95% constituted of that population. So ju- just about every person in that community is in a single district. So they, they win that district, but they do so with a tremendous amount of wasted votes. So the wasted mm, right. votes are votes above and beyond the first past, first past the post you know, one more than 50% that's needed to actually win the seat. Right. Um, so if you are in a district that votes for the candidate of your choice by 95%, um, a whole bunch of those votes weren't necessary to elect the candidate of your choice. And had those voters been distributed in different districts around surrounding districts, then you could have had influence on those seats as well. I mean, you can even imagine that that in such a scenario where uh, people are packed into a single district, if it comes to be the case that the people in that population tend to prefer one party over the other, mm-hmm. uh, and that the opposing party is preferred by people who live in the other districts, you might you can imagine a scenario where that other party wouldn't even run a candidate Correct. in that district, proving the degree to which the votes are wasted. In the sense that you're not those people don't even actually have a choice anymore; they don't get to consider the candidate of the other party. Correct. Um, uh, and this happens. I mean, this happens relatively routinely in U.S. congressional races. Um, in, a, in a given two-year cycle, it is not uncommon um, for Democrats, actually, to get more individual votes than Republican candidates, even if Republicans win a strong majority um, in the House of Representatives. And it's easy to think about that just by a very simple example. If you think, if, if you're in New York City, um, the Democratic candidate in New York City wins her seat by 85 percent, 
the Republican candidate in Wyoming wins his seat by 56%, right? So, so even if you have the same number of people in each district, which you have to because of equal population rules about districting, you have a lot more Democratic votes than you do Republican votes because the Democrats are winning their seats by a much bigger margin. Yeah, but we don't have proportional representation, so right. that doesn't get reflected in right. the right. composition of the legislature. So all of this happens. In Alabama, um, what happened was this phenomena of trying to strategically district for a variety of ways um, intersects with the Voting Rights Act. And what the Voting Rights Act requires, um, and this continues to be true even though Section 5 has been nullified, um, it effectively requires that in order to avoid these problems, particularly the cracking problem, if you have a minority population that is A, large enough to constitute a district, um, a majority in a district, excuse me, and B, geographically concentrated enough that the district is compact. You are not actually required to draw crazy lines, although to some extent you're not forbidden to. Um, And three, is a community, has a candidate of its choice. You can't just assume that all of the people in this community are going to prefer the same candidates or have the same political opinions. But if the community can actually prove that that is in fact the case, um, if you meet those three criteria, then the Voting Rights Act doesn't exactly require but very strongly incentivizes you to draw your districts so that that, dis- that population forms what's created, creates what we call a majority-minority district, a district in which the minority population creates a majority of the number of voting age people in the district. And therefore, and these are the operative words, that population has the ability to elect a candidate of its choice. Now, that sounds like if it were taken to an extreme degree where you started ignoring the other traditional considerations for districting, that sounds like packing. Like, it can be. Like, yep. But, but it isn't. It sounds like it's not when, you're, when you say you just create under the three conditions you specified a majority minority district. Because you're not looking to, well, let's make sure everyone's in there so like half their votes are wasted. It's, yeah, it's a community. It's a a compact area. It's a meaningful uh, way to district. And because they have a preference, they can uh, vote for who they want. Here's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like you have, uh, the Constitution gives the legislature, state legislatures the power to draw districts. But anyway, the state state legislative bodies, state political actors in the majority uh, draw districts. And what we want uh, in terms of drawing districts is a is a certain kind of faithful agency with respect to that thing, which will be disaggregated from their other kind of agency, which is to enact policies preferred by uh, their voters, right? And and so you want them to have different attitudes towards those two different tasks. Like the, in other words, a faithful agent for district drawing should be trying to draw districts to guarantee one person one vote and to basically make a fair you know, some kind of fair allocation and not engage in strategic concentration and dilution, which is my preferred term over packing and, and well, cracking. But, but, but in fact, the problem is, of course, they are not faithful agents, right? Uh, in a particular way, they, they just, you know, they, they are going to concentrate and dilute or pack and crack uh, in order to uh, enhance not only the, their kind of selfish preferences about uh, uh, policy, but also to promote their other kind of agency responsibilities, which are to, you know, enhance the po- the policy choices mm-hmm. of the people who voted them into office mm-hmm. and 
So this seems like a really hard problem because the way you're trying to govern this agency problem is to make them behave as if they, you know, so a faithful agent with respect to redistricting would care about these things like uh, compactness and, you know, fairness, equality, one person, one vote. And so we're going to govern you in discrete ways. I know you has to be compact, has to be this, has to be that. But like it's almost as if, you know, no matter what you do, there will be this hydraulic pressure which pushes them to violate that faithful agency in some other way, right? Christian's trying really hard to talk about the Arizona case, and I'm no. just not going to let you do it. So um, back to racial gerrymandering. Oh um, what, 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 um, there's an old body of law that becomes the body of law that's at issue in the Alabama case, and that's the so-called racial gerrymandering case. And what happens is this. As you know, we have constitutional rules that are very concerned about the extent to which governments in decision-making rely on race. Um, but of course, the Voting Rights Act self-evidently requires governmental decision makers to rely on race. So the question that presents in these racial gerrymandering cases is this. When the legislature draws districts um, with awareness and uses race in order to draw districts in particular ways, have they committed an equal protection violation by intentionally using race? Um, and that's the question that the court had to deal with in a line of cases, including uh, the, the, the first case was the Shaw case. Um, and what the court said um, was interesting because, as you know, with equal protection cases, we usually um, apply race-based governmental decision-making to strict scrutiny. So one answer here could have been that whenever a, a, a state legislature draws districts and considers race in doing so, that's race-based decision-making, and the court, the, the, the court has to review that decision with strict scrutiny. There's a problem with applying strict scrutiny to race, the use of race in districting, though. And Justice O'Connor, who wrote the, the, the lead opinion in Shaw as a former elected official, mm. unlike anyone else on her court, was well aware of this. Districting is an exercise in demographics and data. Um, legislatures know absolutely everything about every person who they draw in or out of any district. Now, this is scary. So if you say that any use of race in that process, particularly when race and partisanship are very highly correlated and legislators are very interested in partisanship, um, if you're going to subject every single districting decision that considers race to strict scrutiny, you have just Put the hand, put put districting in the hands of federal court judges. Every single districting choice becomes something that's subjected to strict scrutiny by the federal courts. I want to back up just a sec, because um, I want to make sure I understand where one of the tensions is in the Alabama case. So I, it sounded like what you said before is that Section Five is approving mm -hmm. of the existence of majority minority districts. Mm -hmm. Section Five tells us that these can be good things because mm -hmm. they permit a minority community to elect the official of their choice, mm -hmm. where that is a meaningful thing to say on mm -hmm. the basis of evidence. Mm -hmm. Is that, do I have that right? You have that right. So given that that's been approved, that's where, uh, that's, that whole notion, as you described it, is you have to be conscious of race in creating such a district. It would, mm -hmm. It's utterly incoherent to suggest otherwise. Mm -hmm. So now, now that's what lands you in the potential equal protection soup. Correct. Is that, oh my gosh, you just did something conscious of race. And depending on how you think of the equal protection clause, is it anti-subordination? Is it 
Mm-hmm. race consciousness whatever it is what your theory it might say oh my gosh we're, these things are on a hopeless collision course the con- the equal protection clause is about to destroy the voting rights Act. exactly right i mean that's the problem right that's the problem and the court in shaw which creates the racial gerrymandering claim um as an equal protection claim is very very conscious of this and here's the way they tiptoed around all of those or did not tiptoed the way the way they negotiated all of those problems so what the court says first to address the issue, the concern about subjecting every single districting decision in which race is known to the deciders um, to strict scrutiny, which is crazy. Um, so the first thing that the court does is say the only districting choices that will be subjected to strict scrutiny are not those that in which race is present, but the strict scrutiny will be reserved only for districting decisions in which race predominates when race supersedes traditional districting factors when it becomes the most important thing in the decision-making process. And the traditional ones, again, are things like pre-existing community lines and compactness and that Yeah, sort of the stuff. court doesn't really want to tell us what they are. It gives us a list that includes <laughs> This is like the education things. affirmative action version, you know, of equal protection applied to this, which is, it's kind of the O'Connor compromise. Like, yeah, race matters, but if it's the predominant thing, and it doesn't make it, it doesn't make a damn bit of sense, like theoretically. Well, right? it also doesn't make sense. This, but this it's line pragmatic. Of case, I get it's a pragmatic political compromise, and, and yeah. You know, yeah. And this line of cases was very heavily criticized on exactly the grounds that, unlike traditional Voting Rights Act cases and traditional constitutional race discrimination cases, um, it's actually this is neither a dilution claim. No community's power is being diluted nor is any community being denied the right to vote, denied ballot to box access. So the harm here in these racial gerrymandering claims, as Christian just alluded to, is very much that when the government appears to use race too much, that creates kind of the symbolic harm about the role of race in government decision making. Um, So in any event, though, what the court does in creating this racial gerrymandering claim is it says we're not going to subject every districting decision in which racial considerations are present to strict scrutiny, but only those in which race predominates. And then secondly, and Joe, this gets to your point, um, the court says compliance with the Voting Rights Act, which obviously requires reliance on race, the court says compliance with the Voting Rights Act properly interpreted um, is a compelling interest. So Uh even in strict scrutiny land, if what you're doing is complying with the Voting Rights Act properly interpreted, then you pass strict scrutiny. Well, because well, then it, it, you you have a compelling interest. We still Correct. could ask a tailoring question, right? Like Correct. But but we have a good sense of how it's going to turn right. out. But at least we get as having far as called compelling it compelling. Interest. Yeah. Exactly. So so and and what was going in the original Shaw case? What North Carolina asserted was that they had a compelling interest in getting preclearance because the attorney general at that time was supposed in in and and probably was in fact trying to push section 5 to create more majority minority districts than might have actually been required so what north carolina says is even if the voting rights act properly interpreted didn't require us to consider race this much we have a separate interest in preclearance we have a separate compelling interest in getting pre-cleared. So if the AG is incorrectly interpreting the statute and making us do too much, that's on her. We, the state, get to use that requirement that she's forcing on us as a compelling interest. And the court said no to that. And that's important because it's, that issue directly comes up in the Alabama case. 
So now we know that the Voting Rights Act requires the use of race. If you use race too much, if it predominates, you're subjected to strict scrutiny. Um, but once you're subjected to strict scrutiny, if what you're doing, if the reason you're using race is to comply with the Voting Rights Act properly interpreted, then you pass strict scrutiny for the most part. Okay, so that's what Shaw tells us. Shaw was a case where um, the this is about twenty years ago, right? Because yep. this is Shaw against Reno. So yep. this is back yep. in the Clinton administration. Yep. Okay, and the the challenge, um, the the factual context of Shaw was the challenge was to the intentional creation of majority minority districts. So it was the creation of black districts that was being challenged. That's the thing that the challengers wanted declared unconstitutional. In Alabama, the racial profile is flipped. In Alabama, what happens is that the um, Republican Party takes uh, full control of the state legislative decision-making process. Um, and redistricts. Like, in the week of the 2010 census. Yep. Okay. Um, and in like every redistricting, they want to redistrict in ways that are to their partisan advantage. That's what districters do. Um, and they realize that, that, that um, they can use the Voting Rights Act to justify putting all of their African-American voters, which are reliably Democratic voters, into a single district. And of course, when you do that, you can generate a racial uh, 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 a legislative map that's very Republican friendly, right? Because you've created exactly the scenario I, I talked about earlier um, in my New York and Wyoming example. You've created a scenario where you can a Democrat can win a district by ninety percent of the vote, which means there's no Democratic voters to put any place else. Yeah, so this is the packing phenomenon. This is the packing phenomenon, right? So if you, but you could say. But wait, I was just trying to comply with Section 5 because mm -hmm. we were told majority minorities are fine. So and that's don't... exactly what the Republic or that the Alabama um, state and the Republican Party in the case asserted. They said, we haven't done anything wrong here um, in putting all of these voters in packing these voters. Um, all we're doing is what the Voting Rights Act requires us to. But much like we saw in North Carolina and Shaw, what they were actually doing was probably was, in fact, a bit more than the Voting Rights Act required, because what the legislature had decided was that the Voting Rights Act was re requiring them to not just keep the same number of majority minority districts, but to keep the same percentage of, of African-American population in each of those districts. So in other words, if, if what you had before the redistricting was a majority minority district with a 65% African-American voting age population. What Alabama was saying was after redistricting, that district still has to be 65% African-American. That was problematic because as the, the majority minority districts had been the most underpopulated, so they needed more people to be brought into the district. And it wasn't necessary to get to, get to the um, operative language here, which is that the population have the ability to elect a representative of its choice because African-American voting rates have shot up. So in other words, the, what, what the districting criteria measure is voting age population, not people who actually vote. As voting rates go up, you need fewer people in a given district mm. in order to secure the ability to elect in that district. So Alabama says preclearance required. We're not going to get precleared. 
unless we keep not just the same number of districts, but the same percentage of population distribution. Um, and the court says no to that. Um, the court says that's not what the Voting Rights Act requires. You don't have to do that. Was the whole thing like what presents the opportunity for engaging in any of this stuff at all? Is it the fact that when you do a decennial census and the population of your state has changed? Yes. That sets all these wheels in motion. Because yes. one thing you could wonder is just like, why don't you just leave the districts the way they are? Why do you have to keep redrawing these lines? That's exactly the reason. Well, Reynolds Jeff. versus Sems can require you to redraw it, right? I mean, if, if people move You just around. said the same thing. Yeah. Right? Because the, the reason that you have to read, you have to redraw district lines um, every time you get a new census is because when you have a new census, you now know that your districts have become unequally populated. So one person, one vote requires you to. So that's really that. if if everyone would just stay where they were. <laughs> if <laughs> then, no one ever you wouldn't moved, need to be, but because and, people move yeah, around, because people are born and, and die, voting and, age population yeah. stayed the same. People do move around, don't they, Joe? We, we would they never. Do. In it's strange to say. So and so it and it drives not just uh, congressional <laughs> districts, but even districts with for the state House of Representatives for the Correct. state Senate. It drives everything. Like all of this stuff is is. So there isn't, I get, that sounded like a silly question, but, but I don't think it's silly in the sense that I think it's fair to look at all this and say, is this all just churning? And, and the point it's is, not. it's not just churning, it's not just right? Churning. It's populations do change. People do move in and out of state, in and out of a town. And in order to keep this process designed to make representatives responsive to the people who elect them, you, ha this, you can't escape this. This right. is an inevitability, much like death itself. You mean taxes. the redrawing? I mean... Why should I not be hopeless about this? I mean, because you have a you have a contested principle of equal protection, mm -hmm. which has two interpretations that are basically opposed to one another on this kind of issue. You have, a, and they are race consciousness and anti subordination. Right? Yeah. I mean, one of them would be totally fine with laws which advantage previous, you know, previously, previously disadvantaged. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And the and the other says no consciousness of race at all, and that maps onto completely opposite views right. mm -hmm. here. Uh, we also have. Um, a completely opposed principles in general about voting. Right? We have uh, one person, one vote. In other words, everybody should have basically equal power to have a uh, uh, to have a uh, a say in representation. Uh, and on the other hand, we have a principle which places the power for drawing lines in the legislature. Right. And in a world where you know the demographics, you can basically predict outcomes, or at least to a high degree of accuracy, outcomes based on how you draw the lines. Then those two things are opposed. Mm -hmm. And we also have, uh, you know, the Supreme Court has given us a principle that there's nothing wrong with political gerrymandering, mm -hmm. right? So there's nothing wrong with intentionally drawing lines in order to protect incumbents. But everything wrong with racial gerrymandering. Well, and that's why this case, even though <laughs> yeah. it was technically remanded um, back and not decided on the merits, the reason that it's important and the reason that I insisted on talking about it before we talk about Arizona is because it makes very acute exactly the point you just raised. This mm. primes up the problem that people perceive is going on in Arizona. Um, because what we learn from the Alabama case um, is two things. The first is this. If Alabama's interpretation of what the Voting Rights Act required in terms of the composition of majority minority districts had been held to be what the Voting Rights Act actually requires, the court would have been almost compelled to strike the Voting Rights Act itself down as unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. um, so the holding is important in that by narrowing the scope of the Voting Rights Act to, frankly, what everybody except Alabama thought it all Remind required. us what the holding was. What, um, um, what Justice Breyer wrote for the court was that uh, he remanded back for further fact-finding under, under the proper test. But what he said um, substantively was that 
The Voting Rights Act, in fact, does not require that the racial, the, the percentage of the racial minority in the districts remain the same. He said what matters is that the population have the ability to elect a representative of its choice. Of their choice, yeah. So therefore, you can't justify increasing the percentage or keeping the percentage at 65 or 70 percent African-American voting age if that's not necessary to actually make sure that the population has the opportunity to elect the representative of its choice. Right. You can't use Section 5 or 2 effectively um, to say the the Voting Rights Act made me do this. Right. And Justice Breyer said it just doesn't require that. That's important, like I said, for two reasons. The first is if the court had read the, the Voting Rights Act as requiring that, it almost certainly would have been too race conscious for Kennedy to tolerate and would have probably had to be constitutionally struck down. But secondly, what it means is that the Voting Rights Act cannot become the reason that constitutionally justifies the partisan desire to pack your Democratic voters when race and race and um, partisanship are correlated into single districts. So we have taken that out of the reasons that legislatures can use to justify what is partisan gerrymandering. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't use this as a... And that's why it's important, because as Joe has said, um, our Constitution takes very different, our court has taken very different approaches to the constitutional um, validity of using race in districting choices versus using partisanship in districting. And the court has basically said, as we've been discussing, the use of race is going to be constitutionally suspect, and you better have a really good reason, like the Voting Rights Act, if you're going to use race a lot. Partisanship, on the other hand, the court is sitting on a 4-4-1 split mm-hmm. about whether the use of partisanship in districting, intentionally drawing lines in order to advantage um, your preferred partisan position. Um, the court has been uncertain about whether that has constitutional problems with it. And it, it undoubtedly is occurring. It and undoubtedly fact, is it, occurring. The question is, does, the most is, it, is it constitutionally suspect? Right. Um, and like it's 4-4-1. Um, the four more conservative justices have said partisan gerrymandering is simply not constitutionally um, it's not justiciable. It's not a, it's, if it raises constitutional problems, they're of the nature that have to be sorted out in the political realm. We just can't deal with this. The realm in which the gerrymandering itself is causing yeah. a problem. And, and the court has reached that conclusion <laughs> right. precisely for the same reason that we talked about in regard to race. Um, partis- partisan interests will have an impact on districting. So if you are going to make the use of partisanship something that federal judges decide um, whether or not it's permissible, you have to decide the same question we saw in Shaw, how much is too much before it becomes a constitutional matter. As, as and a, no one's been able to answer that question for the court. And Just institutionally, you have, to, you, you have to accept that it will be the federal judiciary doing it. Right. Right. Whereas, whereas in fact, the institutional conversation you might rather be having is... Does it make sense for the drawing of legislative districts, whether for congressional representation or for representation within state legislatures, does it make any sense at all for the legislators to be the ones doing it, right? Because at at the national level, you might say, ah, so the institutional conversation we need to have is we need to change this language in Article 1, Section 2 or Section 4 or whatever it is and say – Okay, legislators can't do this anymore. It's not state legislators, not the national legislators. 
this is not a job for legislators. We need a whole new institution. Let me go further. I'm going to go further. I'm just going to tee us up a little bit further, and then, uh, but uh, and then we'll be out of time. What? Yes. <laughs> what are what are the valid principles under which you should decide how to do districting? And I say that because because uh, you know under under an overriding principle about like equal say in government, I would think you'd be pushed toward a proportional representation parliamentary system. So is there is it even conceivable to have a principled system under you know even if you have a completely different agency than the legislature drawing lines the very idea of lo- drawing lines putting people in the districts where those lines can move um like how it seems to me that we don't have an agreement on what we're aiming at that's there. exactly right yeah. we, we we don't have baseline agreement about what a fair district looks like and people think they do but you just scratch the surface on that. People will say, well, they should be geographically compact. Well, of course they could, but that can still maneuver a lot of things in a lot of unfairness. And people say, well, they should. Um, but why? 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 Even at the first thing you just said, why should they be geographically compact? I agree with you. I don't think they should be. Um, because, But the reason. People are thinking that a community should have a voice. Like that basically our system is an individual has a voice in his or her community and the community should have a voice in the larger governance. No, that's the, not what I mean. Um, well, I mean, I'm, well, you and I agree that it's, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, so geography and communities of interest are actually very separate things that can or cannot um, overlap and often pull in different directions. Um, when I reference geography, I think people think districting is easy. If we were just to district fairly, we would just draw relatively straight lines. And anything that deviates from a relatively straight line is evidence that the districter is trying to do something sneaky and inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, you That's say... That's the word gerrymander, right? As opposed to counties in the West, right? right? Which is square. But, but, but then um, you say, well, but of course, we also think districting should empower or keep together communities of interest. We don't want you, if, if there's a community that you know, has a certain identity, then splitting them up so they can't elect an, uh, elect someone, that seems a little sneaky. But of course, communities of interest don't always track perfectly straight lines. They can be crazy. They can track landmarks. They can track housing patterns. Um, they can track you can have an agricultural area versus a industrial area. Um, so communities of, of interest and tidy lines can be in conflict. Then you'll also have, well, what, what we should be trying to draw lines to do is to make sure that each, each district is competitive. Um, well, why should each district be competitive? If, you're, if you live in a districting unit that's 70% leaning Republican and 30% leaving, leaning Democrat, what justifies trying to draw each line, each district to be competitive? Right. Probably nothing. So then you'll hear, well, maybe what we should try to do is have the number of um, seats that are elected by each party represent that 70-30 split. So however we draw them, we should draw them so 70% of the seats are likely to go Republican and 30% are likely to go Democrat. You can do that, but then you you still, first of all, you're now miles away from tidy lines and communities of interest, (laughs) right? Right. Um, um, But then that itself raises a problem of within each of these districts, should we be trying to um, make them competitive um, to keep that 30-70 split? You have to do a lot of fine-tuning about where districts are going, which districts are going to be competitive, which districts are going to be safe, and why are competitive districts even good? If 70% of your voters are Republican and they are extremists, is it representative of that population to draw districts that try to mush everything to and the And I'm middle? asking whether districts are even good so that 
you know, you can you can appreciate. So why wouldn't anyone have ever wanted to do this by districts rather than proportional representation? And I think maybe there. You know, can, I, I, can I can I just make sure I understand what you're asking? Yeah. So when you say proportional representation, you're envisioning something where representatives don't represent a thing defined by a place. Right. First and foremost. Right. They represent a party group. Right. And they might come from a particular place, and and we might want to pay attention to things that relate to that place. Right. But that's not the basis on which they were chosen. Yeah, so they were chosen because they are a member of that party. They were on a party list. The party has said they can represent that right. place. And so and the so, reasons you might, you might you might oppose that is because you distrust parties, as I think the framers did. And this is not my area at all, so Lori, Lori will be able to speak to this. But if you don't think parties will be the way that the, the legislature is governed, then then this doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, and proportional if you representation think that, doesn't make us less reliant on parties. It just makes us less reliant on two parties. Right. No, It's in many ways more reliant on parties because you have to run by party lists, not individuals. That's what I mean. That's I mean, what right. he was saying. But, yeah. but, but, right. But I mean, but from the if, if you're one of the framers who thought that political parties would either not arise or you didn't want them to arise, what you want is like the town of Mayberry to have its interests represented in the Congress. And and you think that, that people who live in the town of Mayberry who have like characteristic interests, which are going to be different by and large than the even more rural area or than the people who live in the city – and so what you want to do is kind of draw lines around those people so that the, that, that basically that geographic area can have a vote and send somebody to Washington to represent yeah. the interests of that town, right? Yeah, I think you're right for the wrong reason. Yeah. Um, As I, mean, I often am, ge- right? Geographical <laughs> districting um, pre- predates by centuries um, mm-hmm. the framers' concerns about political parties. Right? Geographic districting is, is very British, that we inherited this. Um, and it was based exactly on the notion that you're talking about. Representative or seats in legislative bodies, the British Parliament, um, were not and today are still not um, equal proportionately populated, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not, they don't have the equivalent of a one person, one vote concept. It's very much about representation of communities of interests, which historically had been defined by geography um, simply because those were the people that you saw and knew. Um, and it was hard to get anywhere else, right? And it was hard to get anywhere else, right? Yeah. So, so literally towns and communities would have their representative. Um, it, of course, the U.S. Senate still does exactly this. It's group representation rather than one person, one vote representation. Right. So we inherited it, which is why we have it. And I think the other reason why we stick with it is um, – we, I think in America, are very committed to the idea that, A, we vote for people, not parties. Um, proportional representation systems require you to identify with a political party. You may not even know which person will be slotted into the seat if your party gets a certain percentage of votes of the whole. Um, we don't like that. We, th- we consider it, by well, we I mean not me. Yeah, and not me either. Like, no, like nobody in this virtue. room, I think, right? <laughs> Correct. This, this is very popular in American political rhetoric. And right? it's utterly false, right? People take great pride in saying or pretending that they're not partisan, that they vote for the person. But the effect of their vote is to vote for the party. Well, like course. everybody knows, I mean, is there. Everybody does not know that, sadly. Right. Um, but I mean, there, are there empirics on? I mean. Well, the, not well, only anyway, is the effect, know. but it's the, the, the reason that. Um, yeah, if you unpack why you like that person, it winds up being that. Any other candidate running on that party would have many of the same features yeah. and characteristics. So it's sort of like, uh, so actually, it is the party, whether you realize it or not. Um, yeah. The well, the reason I ca- ca- the only vote that matters in a legislative race is who the guy you vote for is going to vote for, for speaker. 
<laughs> right. In a, in a House race, right. that's absolutely right. Um, I take us down this road. Or the majority because, leader in the Senate. I mean, yeah, agreed. Because just because I find the um, uh, the the internal doctrinal discussion of the role of, the first of all, the constitutionality of various parts of the Voting Rights Act, the statutory effect of that act, and the and also the uh, equal protection impacts on either partisan or race. I find it very, very frustrating because because every argument is not the arguments aren't hinged to a common thing right they're just kind right. of freestanding free floating so like what you think about it it becomes just a larger kind of you know primitive political battle over what you think should happen rather than proceeding from any idea about how this should be done so if you were going to try to do that you would try to develop a a model for how a faithful agent would conduct voting in, say in a state so if you were committed to the idea of districts and lines how would a faithful agent who wants to be fair and you have to have some principles about what that means? But there work, lies but the, the problem. Yeah, you'd have to know like why you have districts in order to do that, right? And I can't figure out for the life of me. I can figure out why maybe originally and may, maybe you know back when people did not travel and communities basically engaged in very similar occupations because of geography, whatever, that you would want representation of that geographic interest because that was the interest of the people. These days, I can't figure out like why we would ever want this. Well, the one small reason, and I think it is a small reason, but it's one that would certainly be used rhetorically if this conversation ever became serious in American politics. Um, in addition to liking to vote for a person rather than a party, I think there is a certain fondness for having my representative. Um, and this is in part because our representatives not do things. Be, they don't just vote on big picture policy issues. They answer our phone calls, send us mail, get us White House passes, um, and right. fix the potholes outside the house, right? So there is kind of this fondness also for the idea that this person is my person, and I have this representative. A parliamentary system they squabble over porked, but right, it less but charitably. A, par- a parliamentary right? system doesn't give you that, um, yeah. and it certainly doesn't incentivize pork, which might is certainly in many ways a good thing, but it's also a reason why people like the geographic thing. And I also think there is still a lingering idea that our most important identities are geographically associated. Um, I, I, I find that problematic, well, you, but I think it continues to exist. Just to play that aside for one second, I don't want to sidetrack us too much because we're almost done anyway, right, Joe? Right. <laughs> uh, uh, if, if you had, say, every state just was assigned a certain number of representatives based on the latest census, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the state conducted a basically parliamentary-type election mm-hmm. and just assigned to the parties. Uh, uh, rep- the the party could kind of pre-commit to a panel to a, to a panel of representatives mm-hmm. who are geographically diverse, and they would have an incentive to do so, mm-hmm. right? Because you want to, because the party wants to communicate. We will have people from your, you know, here's where the people will be. They will be responsive to you because you know that's. It seems like there's a built-in incentive for that to happen in a in a parliamentary market. But- that's right, but as a voter, you don't get to vote for the person who's going to represent your geographical region, right? So there's not that sense of immediate connection. You're voting for a party with the understanding that on that list, should the party get enough votes to get down as far as your geographical person, yeah, right. you will at some point be in the queue to that have That just seems like psychologically crazy to me that you would ever feel a connection with the, with the person whose name you vote for, just because of the numbers these days. Like, I don't feel a connection. I'm voting for the person. Partly, you know, I'm also thinking about the mm-hmm. broader politics well, it depends of it, on but, the election, right? I mean, but I already I, know that my vote doesn't matter anyway, as an individual matter. In, right? in terms of the... Um, the way that various elections are carried out and uh, the amount of advertising dollars that are spent by candidates for their various offices is a statewide office, a national office. 
I mean, I think it, it depends very much. On, I agree with you when I'm looking at a list of, you know, when I lived in Illinois and I'm looking at the list of judicial candidates. Um, yeah, I didn't have a very good sense of anything other than uh, a party ID to the degree that that I'm now wondering. I don't know, this has been a long time since I lived in Illinois. How obvious was party ID? Anyway, my point is, yes, I'm sure we can all understand there are offices as to which we feel no personal connection. I feel like presidential elections, many voters, I'll put myself on that in that group, many voters do come to feel a personal connection with the candidate who's who they feel is like articulating the things they believe, the vision they have. The t- this is what presidential politics is today. But wait, right. that's, so, that's a different kind of personal connection than what Lori was talking about. You were talking about, hey, I'm voting for this person, and now my connection to them is such that I can get them on the phone and complain if I don't like what they're doing. I agree. That is a different kind of personal connection, but it is a personal one. It is a way that a person can come to feel like the fact that I go to the ballot box and that name is there, not just a letter D or a letter R, that matters, right, to the way I experience the process. Which means that parties under the system I'm talking about would have an incentive to list the people who would go if they're voted in, right? Indeed they would, but the sense sense to the, the, the degree to which that was a, a a commitment that you were uh, trusting them to follow through on. And the, the difference between that and it's being a thing that uh, the very fabric of the law is constructed entirely around the fact that that is a, the person who will serve, right? That if you care a lot about the people, you'll be very suspicious of the gap I just described, right? Because you want to vote for the person who will serve, if that's your preference. One of the neat things um, about proportional representation is it actually solves a lot of the problems that people like Justice Thomas write about in Voting Rights Act cases. Um, Because what Justice Thomas likes to tell us in Voting Rights Act cases, or in really any race cases, is that we are assuming that all black people think the same, all women think the same. Um, And that's why he's so opposed to using race in governmental decision making, including in districting. Proportional representation, of course, completely gets rid of that problem because it lets each individual voter choose her identity. Um, I can choose if I am a a, a African-American conservative libertarian, I can choose which component of that identity I want my vote to reflect. No one has to group me. I actually, right. each voter gets to group themselves by voting for a, a party list um, of, of one sort or another. So it's actually kind of a nifty way around what some of the opponents of race conscious districting at all um, talk about. So how, how would we, to bring it back to the Alabama case? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry I took us off the rails there, but if we I took if, us off the rails a long time. Yeah, ago. well, but if we come back from that and and we, um, you know, we accept that the a parliamentary a parliamentary reform is not infeasible. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, so how should we have this? How could we have this debate better about the Alabama case, despite the fact that, like, as, as I started down this road, like I'm kind of hopeless about it because I, you know, I just it seems like nonsense. You know, you can have the, it looks like legal briefs, it looks like legal argument, but like it seems like nonsense to me and um and i'm hopeless about it so it make me hopeful how what's the best way to have this argument i mean in other words what should we be aiming for right like i don't know what i should aim for within the system you're not going to like my answer oh boy um particularly because you wanted to talk about the arizona case well we're not going to we're not going to although yeah. if you 
if you if you would invite me back after it was decided, I'd love to. We'll talk wait and see how this case. one turns out. I want to speak when you're done. <laughs> I've now completely forgotten what I was. What was your question? My, question? Yeah, well, give him hope. Yeah. What, what, oh, hope. Yeah, I can't yeah. give you hope. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was easy enough. That was fast. So, no, I mean, the, the answer that you are not going to like, because I think you are um, keen on what Arizona did, and just in a very brief nutshell, what Arizona did was say the partisan conflicts of interest in having the state legislature, which, of course, is a political body, decide districting are just too strong. They're too much. There's too much self-interest. There's too much partisan gerrymandering, which is gerrymandering for partisan advantage. Um, we're going to take it out of the hands of the state legislature, legislator, legislature. We're going to give it to a um, commission yeah. um, that's outside the legislature. Um, the idea of that was to try to solve partisan gerrymandering. So my answer to your question is I don't think these independent commissions can solve this problem precisely because we don't agree. We do not have a common definition of what FAIR is. You can't charge a commission of any sort with doing this task if you can't tell them what they're shooting for. And the fact is the meaning of representation is inherently contested. There aren't, I can't give you hope because there aren't right answers to that question. Well, how what, about re- this, what representation is and should be is an inherently contested um, concept. So therefore, I actually think having it in the hands of elected officials so it can be fluid and contested is better than having it cemented as a matter of U.S. constitutional law so, yeah. or unaccountable in the hands of an electoral commission. So my friend, you know, my friend Chris Elmendorf wrote one of the early mm-hmm. pieces about these commissions and 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 I think influenced the way California uh, mm-hmm. adopted theirs. Uh, and, and so it's very different than Arizona because the, the commission doesn't make a final decision. But, but basically there's this independent commission. I think his original idea was these would be like old judges, retired judges, not necessarily old, maybe just retired. Uh, but, uh, but people who... Um, weren't like inherently viewed as partisan, even though if you're a realist, like everybody's partisan, but you know, that somehow a little bit above the fray, they would come up with a proposal and then it would go to the legislature for an up or down vote. No conference committee, no amendments uh, closed and they could reject it. Right. Mm -hmm. But that the fact that it was proposed by this committee gives that proposal some weight and there would be some political cost in just rejecting it. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, so that doesn't take it out of the hand of the legislature at all, out of the hands of the legislature uh, completely. Um, but in, so in, in the situation where we don't agree on what is fair and where I think there are certain theoretical problems with identifying, you know, any particular kinds of ideal fairness, um, it may at least get rid of what I think could be the worst kind of unfairness, which is entrenchment, right? Uh, uh, by incumbents. Right. So let's talk about this because okay. this, what you're saying, what, what these commissions do and particularly a commission like you just described that ends up with an up or down legislative vote. Um, the cost of that, of course, is that you take out of the political accountable arena the contest about representation, what representation should be. You take that out of the political arena, you give it to someone who's not accountable at all, um, and then you do an up or down vote. So you, you take away the ability of groups to fight for their vision of representation. That's a cost. The purported reason that it's nonetheless worth doing is because, as you put it, you remove what you see as the most egregious abuse of the process, which is 
partisan gerrymandering, which then generates entrenchment. Here's my problem with that. Partisan gerrymandering, again, gerrymandering to benefit your political party, um, is really easy to hate because it's really ugly. Um, And rhetorically, it's appalling. It's the elected officials choosing their constituents rather than the constituents choosing their elected officials. Great. So it's a really easy thing to hate on. Um, The difficulty is it's not actually probably doing very much work in creating the mess that is our politics. Partisan gerrymandering is not the reason that we have hyperpartisanship right now. Um, There are lots of much, much better reasons that political scientists will tell us are causing that. And I know we're out of time. So next time, if I'm invited back, we can talk more about that. Um, And in fact, though, the biggest reason we have, the the main reason, I don't want to say the main reason, but a much more important reason than partisan manipulation of districting lines is the fact that we are demographically self-sorting to an increasing extent. Right. So Democrats are living by Democrats. Republicans are living by Republicans. There are very few partisanly mixed communities anymore. So you can draw the tidiest and, and lines that you want yeah, to, yeah. and you are going to have deeply divided partisan seats. Um, partisan gerrymandering as an intentional manipulation for partisan purposes is not not a problem. But nor is it the cause of the ugliness of our But if we could just take that politics. one out, I mean, so it, yeah, suppose if, there are all if, these other. And if it was free, yeah. If it was a, if it was costless to take that out, you know, groovy. It's not costless. But if, other, but if these other systems, you know, whatever they choose, there'll be certain unfairnesses and fairnesses and principles which are adhered to, and other principles which are not. Like I almost don't like if we can't move to a parla- uh, parliamentary system, I almost don't care, you know, because under any uh, which. So long as it's random, you know, if we could just randomly impose unfairnesses and that changes over time, it's fine. It's the, the partisan entrenchment one is the one which seems to me not random and continuing to place continuous Nothing pressures. Nothing is going to randomly distribute the cost because yeah. any representational theory, are you going to ch- – everyone thinks let's make everyone moderate. That's not random I don't to want the extremist that. in yeah, the no, party no, no, who yeah. doesn't want moderately competitive I don't want districts. that either, yeah. So the in terms of in the institutional design, w- one thing I – feel walking away from engaging with this for a little while is we haven't yet had enough institutional experimentation that there 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 are probably another range of different things we could try like if you have this um a commission that's going to like a base closing commission right give the legislature a map to vote yay or nay right your observation wait a minute you just depoliticize what needs what is an inherently political discussion about what model of representation is good and why, right? So, and the people need to do that. So maybe the legislature needs to be able to vote on here are the top three priorities the commission should use when it's drawing up the map, right? And so, like, just an illust- that's just an example of how we could play with granularity in who has what task as we continue to engage in institutional experimentation about different ways to come up with district we lines. We could, but experimentation is usually done with the goal of figuring, or with, with and the, the point of that type of experimentation is usually to figure out which one of these methods best um, accomplishes our goal. The problem with this area is we don't have a goal. We do yes. not have a common But the conversation goal. about experimentation can be a way to talk about the goal, right? It's an occasion for talking about 
what goals you're trying to achieve, be, and that helps you pick which one of these experiments you're would be better putting, than which you're, other. You're thinking of making the legislators and, and announcing this, like, here's our list of goals for the commission, politically accountable for the list of goals, right? It was just an illustration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, that's an and, example and it was of as a way to, as a way to um, motivate a, a conversation about the different moving pieces. And what I guess... Um, I also I want to encourage people before our next conversation about it, the Arizona case, once it gets decided, I listened to that oral argument this morning, most of it, not all of it. Um, I didn't have time. But if you like podcasts and so you like listening to recorded conversations, um, I think the oral argument in the Arizona case was unbelievably fascinating. And uh, and I would encourage people who've enjoyed this episode to listen to it. You can get it on the Supreme Court's website. You can get it at oya.org. I'll link it up um, in the show notes. You know, yeah. it's really interesting and it's very understandable, right? And it's debating about this job about is this like Arizona created this commission? Is that a legislature or not? How have we answered that question in other cases we've already decided? How should we approach it today? It's it's very approachable. It's King versus Burwell for election rules. <laughs> and to be clear, when I say that this is inherently contested and I don't think it should be taken out of the realm of politics, um, that absolutely does not mean that I think that the Arizona state legislature should win this case um, because the quintessential way to take something out of politics is to constitutionalize it. <laughs> right, right. That's very much a taking <laughs> out is, of politics. Which is what the Arizona right. state legislature is and, asking and of the course, Supreme Court to do. Saying, you know, saying it should be by popular initiative, which is how this commission was itself created, right? It was because voters decided they wanted this commission, although the commission itself has only five people, um, as I understand it. Uh, that, that um, you know, so there are layers upon layers upon layers here of thinking about how you can get politics to... Um, to process these questions, right? Um, what parts of it could be initiatives? What parts of it could be legislative legislatures voting on things? What parts of it could be uh, professionals who have been given a list of goals and a means, a permissible means for meeting those goals, and who then have to go do the work, and whose work can then be checked? I mean, these. So there's lots of different institutional factors to play with here. One thing that would kill it all in the crib is the Supreme Court of the United States saying. Legislature means one and only one thing, and here's what it is, and it was from 1780, whatever yakety blah, it says and none rules, of you can do yeah, any of these things. The rules of the federal elections are the rules prescribed by the state, by, by the legislature, roughly those words, but it's the words of the legislature. And I actually think that the word being interpreted there is the word the, and not legislature, right? <laughs> because, <laughs> that could be. So is it, there's nothing to stop, um, as, as, as I see it, other than Republican guarantee, maybe, uh, Arizona from saying, you know what, if, uh, if two houses of the legislature are good, 50 or even better. So we're going to have a 50 house legislature and and bills on, say, health and safety go through these three houses and bills on uh, spending go through these four houses right. of the legislature and bills on redistricting go through these two houses, which are different than the other ones. Right. And given that the Arizona Constitution, as I understood it from this from listening to the argument this morning, given that the Arizona Constitution does frame the voting population of Arizona as one facet of the legislature, right? Like, as a matter of Arizona state law, the voting populace is part of the legislature, right? Yeah. What ground does a federal court have to second-guess Arizona's definition of Arizona's legislature? Well, the, that's the is, question you've just the raised. The concurrence in Bush versus Gore would have something to exactly. say about that, right? But right. it's so, so it's the, the, the whole the whole case <laughs> is when the Constitution says the legislature. Does that mean a particular kind of body right. that existed at the time of the framing or whatever? And or, let me add just one thing yeah. for for for. 
for listeners who think that obviously the legislature means the legislature, um, mm-hmm. there's a great case that's been bouncing around um, in the briefs and in the oral arguments about this, and the name escapes me right now. Smiley. Um, but basically, the question presented was the legislature legislature of X of a state had passed a districting plan, and the governor vetoed it. Right. Yeah. And the, the legislature case. sued and said. The legislature means the legislature, so the governor can't veto this. Um, and the court said, no, 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 that's not right. The, it's the legislative process. So I think, and I think most people would think that case is rightly decided, that the constitutional text was not intended to alter the legislative process when the governor's part of that and the governor's veto power is part of that. So, so takeaway lesson of the day, plain meaning is not plain. <laughs> and the concurrence in Bush versus Gore was all about the fact that the Florida Supreme Court's interpretation was not the rule of the legislature from the purpose of this clause, which is the legislature of the state gets to decide uh, what the rules are, right? And, and that did not yeah. win the day, right? right? I mean, that was, I think, a three-vote concurrence, yes. Lori. Yeah. And it, I think Scalia wrote it, right? Um, I think so. But but un, uh, I think in, in some contrast to um, the uh, justifiably complex uh, doctrinal and statutory facets we were talking about with respect to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause, and um, that, that a question cast at this level of generality, like, w- w- what does it mean to say it's a legislature's job, and how do you go about figuring out the contours of that word in a context like this? I think that's something that might be more accessible to people. I'm not sure. Now that I've said it out loud, I don't know that I, that's right, but it might be. I just think people should listen to the oral argument. I thought it was fascinating. Really, very enjoyable. Lawyers at the top of their game. Judges at the top of their game. I have a huge crush on Justice Kagan right now, listening to that argument this morning. Just and by the huge. oral argument, you don't mean our show, which is Correct. also called I mean, the, the oral Supreme argument. Court's we oral are argument. the oral argument. It is yeah. all about the meaning of the. Yeah, it's all about the meaning of the. <laughs> what, else, what else do we have? We no, got, nothing for today. We just got to thank our, thank our guest today. Yeah. All right. So thanks, Joe, for joining us today. No. <laughs> I don't know why. I love that Lori's your new co-host. I think that's great. (laughs) For you, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It it would definitely, if Lori were uh, were a co-host, the the podcast would live up to its name. There would be more swearing. (laughs) There would certainly be more disagreement. I swear a lot, but... um, Very little of it actually makes the show. Yeah. There are plenty of other times, uh, you know, where you disagree and and are brought to the point of of near violence. Yeah. 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 Hmm. What else we got? Nothing. 